Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And in today's episode, we are continuing our introduction to Catholic social teaching. In the first episode of this season, along with the interview we did with Dr. Elizabeth Kincaid, that was something of our 30,000 feet in the air overview of Catholic social teaching. Very basic, very broad. Um, And I thought Dr. Kincaid did an amazing job of kind of filling in the gaps where you and I, Father Wesley, just didn't have uh, that information because she's an expert in the field. Also Um, a very holy woman. She's a Dallas Cowboys fan. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Obviously, she wears her sanctification in blue and silver. Yeah. Well, if those episodes were kind of 30,000 feet in the air, then today's episode is going to bring us down to... 10 or 15,000 feet in the air. And then our hope moving forward with this season is to eventually get on the ground level and wrestle with some application of the church's social teaching. And so what we're doing today then is we are looking in this episode at the seven themes of Catholic social teaching produced by the United States College of Catholic Bishops. So first, it's important to say that these themes that we're going to talk about, they're not official in any sort of authoritative sense. It's not like they were uh, produced by a pope or, or by the teaching, the Roman Catholic magisterium. Um, other college of bishops in other countries and other theologians who engage with moral teaching and social teaching, they've actually come up with different lists with similar or even different themes. Some have six themes, some have four, some have as many as eight or nine, and so on. Each theologian or group of theologians or group of bishops is wrestling, though, with the same source material, which, as Dr. Kincaid pointed out, is primarily the papal encyclicals of the past uh, 150, 170 years, and well as the tradition of the church that undergirds those all the way back, as she also pointed out, to Holy Scripture. And so it's an attempt to distill the essence of that corpus for the sake of making future judgments and as well of teaching people in parishes, right? I don't think you can really start teaching people in parishes, hey, read read these encyclicals and then we'll start talking. So this today is meant to be kind of the uh, distillation of Catholic social teaching corpus. All right then, well, let's jump right into it. The seven themes of social teaching in the Catholic tradition. The first theme is the sanctity of human life and dignity of the person. Now, this is the foundational principle of all Catholic social teaching. All human life is to be valued and guarded from conception to natural death because it had its inherent dignity from God, its creator. In our modern era, this especially means human life must be valued in the face of consumerism, and it has to be valued over material possessions. And it's a good reminder, too, I think, to revisit the idea of a double gift, that we've been given the gift of grace um, as Christians, but also that, the, that our very existence uh, is a gift from God. And that means that dignity is never derived from what someone does or from what someone is capable of doing. So by virtue of being created, then we don't have to earn a seat at the table based on what we can contribute. We already have one by virtue of existing. Um, And so I think it's important for us to remember that because one of the sort of insidious uh, drives that's wrapped up in kind of market systems and things is to 
commodify is to um, you know place values and assign values on not only things but people and so the Christian tradition kind of in the face of that asserts no it doesn't matter how you contribute to the GDP or what social setting you come from you are significant just by virtue of you existing that's right. So it's an ontological valuation of the human over and against a functional one. And so because this is the foundation of all Catholic social teaching, it might be, if you're interested, listeners, to go actually read uh, Pope John Paul II's encyclical, where he wrote extensively on this issue and is probably one of the probably one of his watershed encyclicals of his papacy. It's called Evangelium Vita, the Gospel of Life, where he lays out this teaching. And so there are some obviously more more obvious applications of this principle that I think most of our listeners are going to understand, such as opposition to abortion, euthanasia, genocide, torture, direct attacks against the innocent and war. Now, speaking of war, sidebar, there is still within Catholic social teaching uh, officially room for just war theories and conversations about that, but we'll get to that later on in the season. But under this principle of the sanctity of life, dignity of the human person, there are some other perhaps less obvious applications and less obvious moral situations that interact with the principle. Things like fornication. So sex outside of marriage is actually one of the moral situations that falls under this issue because it actually lessens the dignity of the human. Contraception, uh, as we talked about war in general, racism, poverty and social welfare, because do you afford people who don't make as much the dignity that they have in God's eyes? And then more recently, a topic that's been of discussion in the Roman church and in broader Christianity is that of capital punishment. And so that all falls under this. So I hope you can see, and we'll see again as we go through the other six principles, that this really is foundational for all social teaching. And I think you can see how in many ways it pervades every single discussion of Catholic ethics and social engagement. Yes. So that's that's a very important uh, building block. So our second one then is the call to uh, family, community, and participation in the common good. Um, and I think the first step focuses on individual human uh, dignity. Um, but this theme takes a step back and reminds us that as individuals, we're enmeshed in larger social situations. Um, so we see the human within human society and social structures, and we see those structures as being made up of humans. And so um, we need to take care of those things. God said, to, said of man in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. So starting kind of with the most basic human social structure is the family. And so what must be guarded and protected and holy is the divine institution of marriage between one man and one woman. And marriage also becomes the arena for the development of children, not just educationally, but spiritually and emotionally. And of course, if we take a more classical view of education, those three are all wrapped up in what we're supposed to be doing as far as teaching anyways. So Catholic social teaching really places the value of family and children within families above other societal needs. Um, our most immediate responsibilities uh, are to those in our immediate families. But beyond the family, 
we have communities, local communities, towns, cities, um, neighborhoods. We have states, country or uh, countries, um, and all these things. How they organize themselves are very important. Um, and each has to be judged then how well it protects human life and dignity, as well as promotes the flourishing of families. Um, so the government has a clear sort of telos here, which is to enable human flourishing. Historically, then, um, the church has been skeptical of two what we might think of as extreme approaches. It's been critical of communism, but it's also been critical of laissez-faire free market economics. Um, both because they are ill-suited systems for the human community in their own ways, they both contribute to dehumanization. So the government can't, shouldn't be totalitarian. It has to play a positive role in forming and shaping its citizens. We can go all the way back to Plato to learn some about that, though I guess he might cross the line into totalitarianism sometimes, <laughs> depending on how you read him. But a purely hands-off approach from the state is also really not acceptable because it doesn't create an equitable system. Um, also connected to this theme is, um, is the value that's placed by Catholic social teaching on the idea of subsidiarity, which is an organizing principle that basically states that issues and matters should be dealt with at the lowest or the least centralized level of authority. And so things like community councils and local politics are highly valued. And perhaps that's one of the problems in the modern world where we are often very preoccupied with what goes on at the national level. You know, everybody knows who's running for president and who's running for Senate and House. And we keep up with everything that goes on in Washington, D.C. But we don't always know who's running for school board in our local elections or who's running for our city commissioner or something like that, those races, even though those local races tend to have more direct impact on our lives than federal elections. Not that federal elections are unimportant, but just that um, that there is a kind of localism here that's very important, that we need to be aware of what's going on in our immediate communities, because that's one of the ways that we love our neighbors. Yeah, that's right. So if we were to maybe add something of a, of a summary, the first principle is about the dignity, value, and sacredness of human life. The second principle is about the value, dignity, and sacredness of human society and relationships, primarily the family and then local institutions for governance and then moving out from there. And then the third principle or theme is rights and responsibilities. So this was a theme that was actually touched on by you, Father Wesley, in our first episode, so I know you'll have some things to say here, but basically Catholic social teaching says that there are rights inherent to every human based upon the fact that God created them and loves them. Every human has a right to life and to those things necessary for human decency. So it doesn't count to just put humans in camps and not to feed them well or give them horrible living conditions. That doesn't fulfill uh, Catholic social teaching, even though you're letting them live. So included in this, interestingly, is the right of private ownership, though not, an, not absolutely to the detriment of others. It's not a right to be able to hoard up your stuff to the detriment of people around you who are hungry or who are in need. A major right under this category as well is the right to practice both publicly and privately one's religion of choice. And in many ways, according to Catholic social teachers, this right is the fountainhead of all other rights within this category. If you can have the right to religion, then from that flows out 
the rights uh, and understandings. Now, it's important to see that this theme is not just uh, a theme of rights, but also of responsibility. And so this is where the conversational rights today is usually silent. Humans, according to Catholic social teaching, have a responsibility to others, to our neighbors, to our families, and yes, even to our nation. Those who have more have a greater responsibility to contribute than those who have less. And you can go all the way back to St. Saint, uh, Saint Basil's uh, great works on social justice, which is a volume that's, that's published by St. Vladimir's Press. It's his different sermons. And these are themes that he talks about. Look, if you have more, you have a right and a responsibility to give that and to help your neighbor who has less. And so a piece of responsibility is work. Each person who is capable has a responsibility to work and thus contribute to the common good of human society. And so your rights end up becoming a means to achieve a further end, which is fulfilling responsibilities, which is actually loving one's neighbor and investing them with rights to live and to have decency as well. So it's kind of a kind of a circle. Yeah, it goes, I think, goes back to, um, especially in the United States, we have a very individualistic view of rights. Rights are all about asserting my autonomy. But we have to think of rights in terms of the other. So there are mechanisms whereby we acknowledge the other's right to be, um, that the other is as valuable as myself. Um, and so that's kind of how they function. It's also interesting. I mean, we get into some kind of interesting territory when we talk about rights, like you know, the freedom of religion. And on the one hand, and, and we can even look at this uh, in someone like St. Thomas Aquinas, there's a great article in the most recent, one of the most recent issues of the Thomist, which is a great journal, about Aquinas's view on freedom of religion. And it seems as though he's okay to tolerate other religions that are practiced by People So like, you know, if a Jew won't convert from Judaism to Christianity, that's okay. They're, they shouldn't be persecuted for that. Um, same with a Muslim or, or any other religion. He's a little less um, willing to give someone a right to apostatize from Christianity, though, which is interesting. Um, so if you're baptized, he'd say, you've, you've sort of pledged to live a certain way, to live in the church. And you don't have the freedom then to just sort of say, well, I, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Now, in our world, it might be a little bit harder to apply some of what Thomas says there. But I think that you see a corollary with, um, with the way St. Paul treats some of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. You know, this is where excommunication comes in. Well, you know, there, there has to be some sort of um, mechanism whereby the church... Uh, tries to get the attention of people who might apostatize. And of course, there's always grace, you know, there's always the openness for them to come back. But anyways, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting topic when we start to talk about rights, especially in modern United States. And that brings us to the, um, the fourth criteria here, which is the preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, and this one is pretty self-explanatory. Our Lord said that on Judgment Day, uh, will be judged based on how we treated the least of these. And he identifies himself with them. 
And so through our words, deeds, prayers, spending habits, voting, nearly everything, we, we should do that in solidarity with and compassion towards the poor and the vulnerable. And this isn't just a personal matter either. Uh, governments should produce policies that prefer the poor and vulnerable. And according to Catholic social teaching, a society can be judged based on how it treats its most vulnerable members. So um, you can imagine a, a number of topics would kind of fall under this economic plight being one of them, um, but how we treat the immigrant, how we treat um, the unborn, how we treat minority communities, etc., would all kind of fall under this. Pope Benedict XVI taught that caring for the orphan, widow, poor, sick, and oppressed was just as essential as the ministry of word and sacrament for the life of the church. I'm reminded of a, of a sort of beautiful and, and to our modern ears perhaps repulsive story of St. Angela of Foligno who lived in 13th century Italy and she, um, she took care of lepers and so she would, you know, wash their feet and, um, and this is something she says in her, in her, um, memoir. We drank from the water that we used for washing and the sweetness we felt was so great that it lasted all the way home. And when a scab from the leper's sores became lodged in my throat, I tried to swallow it and my conscience kept me from spitting it out just as if I had received Holy Communion. And so I did dislodge it, not in order to spit it out, but so that it could go down my throat. Um, and again, that, that might make us feel uncomfortable and weird and, and a little bit grossed out, but I think that's what makes it so beautiful is that in these people who were suffering from leprosy, which often carried a degree of social stigma, not just, um, it wasn't just a purely medical, um, issue that she would see Christ so clearly in them. And that taking care of them and then and then this kind of um, really bold act would be likened to receiving Holy Communion. Um, to me, that's that's an example that always sticks in my head. And I also think that as Americans, we would I, I can't imagine many Americans doing something like this. Like we're very pragmatic, so we would find ways to get around it. Well, you know, I don't read scripture in a way that would make me do that, that, that kind of way of thinking. And, and I understand, I do understand, but you know, there's just something, there's something very gripping about that story. And I think it kind of proves this point. Yeah. Um, and I think that this, this one, number four preferential option for the poor and vulnerable might be one of the hardest for Americans to really grapple with. But I think that we can see as we're working through these, how they all really flow from that first principle, human life, dignity, and the sanctity of every person. And so then that brings us to number five, this fifth theme of Catholic social teaching, the dignity of work and rights of the worker. Okay, so because work is an essential good for society, societies must value the worker above the economy. The way it's often stated in Catholic social teaching is the economy must serve the people, not the other way around. And so employers must look upon their workers as humans, again, back to that first principle, humans with dignity and not as slaves or bondsmen. Societies and governments, when necessary, must work to protect individual workers. This means establishing fair wages, ensuring safe working environments, and allowing workers to form trade unions. Yes, that is a specific statement 
of Catholic social teaching. And workers also have responsibilities, though. A worker must, um, because they are provided a fair day's wage, they must work for, for that day. They must uh, treat employers and co-workers with respect, and they have to carry out their work in ways that contribute to the common good. Workers must fully and faithfully perform the work they have agreed to do. And so it's, it's, it's a just relationship between worker and employer is the way to think about. And this is a basic theme that runs throughout uh, Catholic social teaching. And it, it reminds me of the way that our products in the West are produced very often by not great situations in third world countries, sweatshops in Vietnam or in Central America, or how the coffee trade is often, uh, in essence, kind of slave labor. It's like bonds labor in, in Africa or in Central America. And so there's a lot of a justice to be work towards in the way that workers and employers have relationships, not just in our country, but outside of our country as well. And that leads us to the sixth point. Yeah, the sixth point is um, solidarity. So one of the most, one of my favorite parables in the New Testament is the Good Samaritan. Um, and, and one of the messages of that parable is that sociocultural, racial, and linguistic barriers or boundaries break down in light of the gospel. We might also think here of Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Uh, of course, not in a way that erases those identities, but in a way that subordinates them to our vocation as Christians to be alter Christus. Um, but but also it's a reminder that we're one human family. And so, you know, the, the sort of first question that's asked of God is, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes, we are our brother's keeper. Um, so solidarity uh, includes the scriptural call to welcome the stranger among us, including immigrants who are seeking work, a safe home, education for children, a decent life for families. On a global level, solidarity uh, concerns itself with the global south and how we as the human race can promote certain regions and alleviate poverty and suffering there. Yeah, and so you see from uh, kind of what was saying in number five about worker and employer, you know, we might look in our situation and say, well, everything seems just and fair around here, but this, this principle of solidarity would force the Catholic Christian to look outside of one's own context. And when someone suffers, like the big current issue is the global south, when someone suffers there, then we too must shoulder that burden and we're suffering with them and we need to work to alleviate them in ways that we can. And so it, it actually pushes against kind of nationalism in a way of kind of uh, huddling together and protecting oneself, but there must be a vested interest in the human family because all humans have dignity and their sanctity of life. Again, principle number one. So then this leads us to the seventh and final theme of Catholic social teaching, care for God's creation. So a term often used in Catholic circles about humans and the earth is called a social mortgage. It recognizes that all the earth's goods a, belong to God primarily, B, are thus loaned to us that we might steward them, and C, that this stewardship be done for the benefit of the whole human race. 
Thus, people cannot exploit the earth, but must protect and respect the environment as a proper attitude of reverence towards God himself and as an act of love towards neighbors. And this even extends to care and treatment of animals. While we are allowed to slaughter and consume animals for food, it should be done with the utmost care, kindness, and respect for animal life. Animals should be given adequate food, water, and living conditions prior to their slaughter. And maybe this one's closer to home because I have chickens in my backyard, which I will one day consume. And so it is recognized that in humanity's exploitation of the earth, it is the poor and the vulnerable who often suffer the most. And so care for creation and care for the human family actually go hand in hand. So this one, which might seem like the least connected to that first principle of sanctity of human life, is actually connected to it. Because there is this symbiotic relationship between the earth and humanity, that when the earth is exploited, there is going to be a part of the human family that suffers and is hurt. And Dr. Kincaid talked about that on the on in her interview that that's one of the issues that she thinks that Catholic social teaching will have to address uh, in the next couple decades as far as the way things are going. And I think she's right about that. So there you have it. Those are the seven themes of Catholic social teaching. Very basic. There's a lot more that can be said about these, but these are setting the the framework for the conversation moving forward. And just to summarize, that's number one, sanctity of human life, dignity of the person. Number two, call to family, community, and participation in the common good. Number three, rights and responsibilities. Number four, preferential option for the poor and vulnerable. Number five, the dignity of work and rights of the worker. Number six, solidarity. Number seven, care for God's creation. Well, that brings this episode pretty much to a close. But before we do that, we'll go to our favorite segment, Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. Father Creighton, take us away. Welcome to another installment of Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about prayers for the dead. Now, uh, as some people may have seen on the Sacramentalist discussion page on Facebook, I was recently ordained a priest. I'm very excited to begin my priestly ministry, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, prayers for the dead and try to connect that to uh, this season's focus on Catholic social teaching. So this is going to be prayers for the dead, and we're going we're gonna to look at how the praying for the dead is a spiritual work of mercy. Now, the reason I mentioned that I was recently ordained a priest is that traditionally, uh, a new priest will say three masses after he is ordained. Now, the first will be a votive of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is called down in the ministry of the new priest. The second is a votive for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, that has to do with the fact that as the Mother of God, as our Lord's Mother, Our Lady gives birth to the priest, gives birth to our high priest. And the uh, 
sacramental priesthood participates in Christ's priesthood. So Our Lady has always been considered mother of priests, and there's an intimate connection between uh, the priesthood and Our Lady. And the third mass that a new priest says is a requiem mass. Now, a requiem mass is a mass for the souls of the faithful departed. Usually, the new priest will remember family members, friends, loved ones, and benefactors who have passed away uh, at the beginning of his ministry for all of the prayers and support that he has received. But I wanted to talk a little bit about prayers for the dead uh, and how they relate to the works of mercy and how we can focus our spirituality and our lives on the good of the other. Now, in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, uh, that's the first Book of Common Prayer, we see that prayers for the dead are in that liturgy. And for a time, we can see historically that prayers for the dead, in some senses, fall out of favor. But we see in the mid-19th century, within Anglicanism, a growing desire to continue the practice of praying for the dead. And it's really the, the Great War, the First World War, that solidifies within Anglicanism uh, this uh, traditional historic Christian Practice. So in the American 1928 Book of Common Prayer, you'll see that prayers for the dead have been added back into uh, the liturgy itself. And so because of the, the upheaval and tumult and horrors of the First World War, uh, the church really begins to recover this practice. And it's become common uh, in, Ang- in the Anglican world to, um, to pray for the dead, to uh, ask God to uh, grant them grace and growth in love and holiness. And it's an, it's an important aspect to our spirituality. Now, there are corporal works of mercy and there are spiritual works of mercy. So one of the spiritual works of mercy, one of the things that we as Christians can do uh, for others, one of the things we can do to love our fellow brothers and sisters in the world is to pray for them. So we pray for the living and we ask each other to pray for uh, various needs and illnesses and all sorts of things. But we also pray for the dead. And we pray for the dead in a way that asks that God would grant them mercy, grant them eternal rest, grant them uh, a path of growth, a path of um, grace and, and growing in holiness. So it's not that we are praying people into heaven. It's not that we are praying people uh, out of purgatory, as it were. But we're really praying for them as we would in this life. So we're interceding for them. We are being others-focused in our prayer life. 
And that connects us to those Christians that have gone before us, just like uh, intercession of the saints, invoking the saints in our prayer life connects us to this great cloud of witnesses, connects us to this deep uh, supernatural reality. So too does praying for the dead take us out of ourselves and praying for our wants and desires and in a sense being selfish in our prayer. Now, it's not bad to pray for ourselves. It's not bad to pray for our desires and uh, our, our hopes and uh, petitions. We're instructed to bring everything to God. But in a way to train our wills, to train our life, to be centered on loving God and loving others, a helpful thing to do is to pray for the dead. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of love on our behalf, on our on our part, on behalf of uh, those that have those that have fallen asleep in the Lord. So, I want to commend the practice of praying for the dead. I want to commend the uh, spiritual discipline of praying for those who have departed this life. And I think. As we enter into Lent, as we enter into this season of discipline and preparation for Easter, it will be good for us, it's good for our souls to begin the practice of praying for the departed. And so I would strongly commend it to everybody who's listening, and I hope that this Lent will be uh, fruitful for you and productive and that we would all grow in holiness, and we would grow in love and charity for our neighbors, that we would be self-sacrificial for those who we love, for those that we don't know, for those that live near us, our communities, etc. And so I would challenge everybody to spend a Lent that is prayerfully focused on loving your neighbor and loving God. God bless you. And remember, more lace, more grace. All right. Thank you, Father Creighton. As always, we appreciate it. Now, how about we talk about what we are into? Father Wesley. Yeah. So uh, I was thinking about this. I've been kind of boring lately because I've had a lot of work to do. So I haven't gotten into a whole lot of new stuff. So I guess what I'm into is being vaccinated. Um, I just I just received my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine um, at a community, a, a retirement community where I do uh, services on Fridays and they were vaccinating all their workers and they um, I, I was able to participate with them to get vaccinated, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, I that's what I'm into. I'm contributing to the common good. There we go. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. All right, well, what I'm into is a little bit um, probably more self-destructive than self-beneficial. I'm kidding. And that is I've recently gotten more into just bourbon and how wonderful and amazing of a drink it is. It it all started, I watched a documentary that can be found on Hulu that's entitled Neat, N-E-A-T. And it is a beautifully shot documentary as well as informative. And um, yeah, it's just made me appreciate one aspect of God's creation that man subcreates, which is bourbon, whiskey, and 
to enjoy it and to enjoy God in the midst of our food and drink, which is a theme that I just appreciate in life in general. If you remember when we had last season Gisela Kreglinger to talk about wine and food and a spirituality surrounding that, I think that's really good stuff. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for joining us today. If you like what we're doing, as always, we ask you to help people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to continue the conversation with us, follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. You can now support us over on Patreon for just $5 a month. You, too, can become one of the members of the Communion of Patreon Saints. And you can email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist.com at gmail.com. Father Wesley, will you pray for us? Sure, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit, let us pray. Almighty God, who has created man in thine own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom, help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice among men and nations, to the glory of thy holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.